Okay, so this is Kevin Richards, and I'm back here with another installment of Going Behind the Research. Um, just as a reminder, rather than providing a forum to discuss research that is conducted in health and physical education, the Going Behind the Research segment of the uh, Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education podcast focuses on telling the stories that surround the research that we read in scholarly journals. Globally, this segment aims to humanize research by providing a forum to discuss the motives that draw, that draw researchers towards topics and studies, challenges and successes experienced along the way, and lessons learned that transcend individual journal publications and impact uh, future research decisions. Each episode features an interview uh, with one or more members of an authorship team to discuss the stories behind uh, a selected publication. Um, today, I'm really excited uh, that I have uh, Mara Simon from Springfield College here with me, who is in Springfield College is, is actually my alma mater where I went to undergrad. So uh, that's pretty fun. Um, and she's going to be talking uh, with us about um, her paper co-authored with Corey Boyd titled Cracks in the Narrative, uh, Black and Latinx uh, Pre-Service PE Teachers in Predominantly White uh, PEAT Programs. So Mara, thank you so much for, uh, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, quick note, there's actually two co-authors on the article, Corey Boyd of Springfield College and Corey Dixon of Rowan College. It's a little confusing because there's <laughs> two Corys and we work all three of us together. So yeah. got to make sure Corey Dixon gets his due as well. But um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're, um, you know, all assistant professors in physical education, teacher education, like I said, at Springfield and Rowan. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and is this, um, so just as an aside, uh, I had the, uh, the chance to attend um, an invisible college session that, that Mara Corey and Corey uh, presented at the, um, uh, at the American Educational Research Association this past year. Does this work dovetail with what you did with what you presented on there? Well, that work was like almost a little bit more um, sort of a meta thinking uh -huh. about what it means to do the research. So this is the research itself that we were doing at the Invisible College presentation. We took a step back and we were thinking very um, sort of theoretically and um, intentionally about what it means to do race research as a integrated or like co-diverse research team. So that was more trying to help all of us in the field think about who we're researching with, what we're researching about, and how what we learned from doing race research could be applied in other contexts. So it's from this study, but uh, we didn't talk about the PET, the pre-service PE teachers' experiences, or what they, what we learned from the study, it was more what we, the process, the like sure. of the study. Yeah, so, you know, some pair. It was overlap, but not a. It's not a repeat. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's perfect. Yeah, and and, and it's. Uh, I only asked that question because I think it can be really meaningful, especially given. The, the purpose of this podcast to look at how our work kind of meshes together and builds yeah. and relates to itself over time. Um, yeah. So I just kind of made that connection in my head as we were talking. Um, but, but so just getting uh, into the, uh, the questions that I've got for you. So starting off as we always do, uh, before we get behind the research, if you could please give us a brief overview of the study with a reminder that the article is gonna be linked in the show notes for this episode uh, for anybody who's interested in reading more. Yeah, of course. So. This study focused on how um, Black and Latinx pre-service PE teachers, how they understood, embodied, and enacted culturally relevant and sustaining pedagogies. 
So we wanted to understand their takes on this very, you know, sort of popular and of the moment term, culturally relevant pedagogy. Like, well, what does that mean for pre-service PE teachers who are already racialized and arguably marginalized in their PE programs and in the field? So mm -hmm. um, we use semi-structured narrative-based interviews, which focus on stories as points of data um, and those were combined with participant generated images, which really helped us um, get new understandings of what it means to teach from a culturally relevant and sustaining approach. Um, and that was coupled with this uh, understanding of their experience being in predominantly white peat programs. Um, and what that all meant for their desire, you know, to work with students of color in PE settings. So things that emerged from these interviews, these stories and, and visuals put together was like this real feeling of otherness, marginalization and hypervisibility. This is not, these are not new themes, but they're important to reiterate because they're not always stated out loud, right? So they were in these white peat programs and there was this sense of I am an other. Um, but from there, participants explained how they hope to give back and like be a source of support or an ally for their like future students of color, whether they were in, you know, some of them were like, no, I'm planning to work in like suburbs, you know, mostly white school, but there will be students of color and I'll be the one they can come to. Others were like, I want to be in an urban setting, like predominantly black, predominantly Latinx school, like all diverse and show this, those students like what you can do if you want to, to when you grow up, you can be a PE teacher. Um, and there was a true like strong social justice orientation along with, you know, specific action items that really fit perfectly within this culturally relevant and sustaining um, pedagogical framework. Um, it was, and and the, the final thing that came out of this was the importance for PEAT professors and advisors to like really acknowledge and, and identify race and racism as salient to pre-service PE teachers of color experience, right? That if you're a white PEAT professor and you advise, you know, pre-service um, teachers of color, like we need to take race into account and like give students a chance to be like raced, like not ignore it. But yet we often see a noticeable disconnect between peak content and practice and participants' desires for feeling confident in their abilities to teach from a social justice lens. So it's like they wanna teach from a social justice perspective, but our peak programs aren't necessarily equipping them to do so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's something that you know, I've, I've thought about a lot more recently in recent years as, as some of my work has started to move into social and emotional learning, which I know is distinct from social justice, of course, but I think that there are some points of intersection. Yeah, total Venn diagram. Yeah, like yeah, there's exactly. a lot of overlap. <laughs> um, and just how, um, you know, a lot of our PE programs, you're right, they're, they're not prepared to do that. They're not, they're not equipped, um, they're, they're not built to teach for things like social justice and social and emotional learning. And, and I think that there's still a lot of tensions in the field um, from some of us in, in positions where we're working in peak programs and understanding that the place of that, I think that there are folks, um, you know, probably such as ourselves who understand and value those things and believe that they should be in peak. But I think I, I sense that there's also still a lot of resistance. 
Yeah, I think so too. And particularly at like the programmatic and, um, you know, state levels where, you know, if you've got state licensure exams that are asking questions about biomechanics, kinesiology, you know, you know, exercise physiology and, you know, skill mechanics, then of course our program requirements, like we're sort of bound by those teacher licensure exam content to make sure that our students can pass them. So if they're not getting asked about social justice or social emotional learning, like where's the impetus or the motivation to bring it into the program and the you know class requirements? I mean, we really wrestle with that at Springfield right now. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, again, different, but I, I work well through analogies. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, my, my main research being with with uh, teacher socialization work, um, it's the same kind of thing. You know, there really isn't a lot of space to talk to students about their biographies and about the impact of people who have socialized them and their training. Um, and so what I see ends up happening is you have people who are passionate about that, like myself, who work that into P programs. Um, and I assume the same thing happens here with social justice, SEL, people who are passionate about those things are going to push them, but then people who aren't passionate about them aren't held accountable for doing it in any way, because yeah. it's not part of the licensure exams. It's not part of this. It's not part of that. Yeah. And we just like replicate this sort of problems that have plagued our field for like decades Never, and decades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that might be a good place to transition. Um, so let's just start broad here. What um, what got you interested in this research topic or area more generally? And, and how does this study fit within your broader line of inquiry? Yeah, I have thought about and like reflected on this question a lot because <laughs> my, I mean, my entire line of work since I have been a doctoral student, right? I started my doctoral program in 2011. Like every single thing I've done has been focused on racism and racial inequity in PE and in, you know, education more broadly. And I am not like totally sure still where this comes from exactly. Like Mm. there's no light bulb moment. I, I don't have like a sort of growing up incident that, you know, sparked this. Um, I, I do remember like writing my doctoral entrance essay from a feminist perspective on sport and PE. And I was a women's studies major in undergrad. Um, so I certainly had like perhaps that critical idea about social justice and social um, fabric and structures in the US. I think like the race, racism piece happened, like once I started at Teachers College for my doctoral program, Columbia, Teachers College, Columbia. And to me, I think that is a testament to the importance of embedding social justice issues into teacher education. Because like at Teachers College, where like really social justice is um, embedded into like every course that I took addressed inequity in some fashion. And it was like, once I took a course on culturally relevant pedagogy, like, even though it was a hard course and I didn't actually really like the course that much, but, um, like the philosophy and beliefs underpinning these ideas are what stuck. And that then led me to my dissertation topic, which was exploring, um, the embodied identities of female PE teachers of color. I guess in general, like I have been always social justice oriented, like I, my parents, um, you know, like founded a Sufi commune before I was born and we are Jewish, but they're also Buddhist. And I went to a Quaker youth group growing up. And so, 
you know, when you have that backdrop of exploration, wonder, curiosity yeah. about difference, um, and, you know, combined with my mom, like, is director of a nonprofit for environmental organization, like, they are, you know, very liberal, progressive people. And so I guess that all combined to, to have me focus on this. Um, and, and I think being like a Jewish minority that carries a history of persecution and Holocaust, mm. you know, it's not the same as being a person of color. You can't tell by looking at me that I'm Jewish, but it does give me lived insights as to what it's like to be marginalized within a community. You know, for example, like I heard Jewish slurs on an almost daily basis in my like very small rural upstate New York high school. Um, but then on the flip side, like basically every other piece of my identity, super privileged, white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual, race, middle class. And so I have worked really hard to leverage those privileges, um, mostly because there's just like this moral impetus that when I see something that feels wrong, like I can't, I just can't stand by and let it yeah. play out. So yeah. yeah, there's no like, oh, I, you know, some great story behind it. It's just like how my life has that path that's led me here. Yeah, it just, it feels like it's just part of the fabric of who you are. Um, yeah. You know, in, in self-study research, we talk about turning points. Yeah. Um, and turning points can either be like distinct moments that you can like hang a hat on and say, this is the time. Yeah. But sometimes they can be like this slow burning process where it just kind of evolves and develops because of you know how you're raised, how you're socialized, how you interact with the world. And it just becomes kind of part of you it, but but it does so in a way that you can't like put your hat on one moment. Exactly. Uh, slow burn is such a good metaphor for it. I mean, it was, a, it was a very slow burn that I think at some points like went out all the way, you know, like in high school I had like, you know, pixie cut that was dyed to yeah. colors and like, yeah, you did. Yeah. Like made my own clothes. And then I went to like preppy Hamilton college and was like, Oh, Vera Bradley was a thing. And then I like came back to it. So it's like, it's been a long winding road uh, to, arrive at but what you're right that like what authentically feels like me is work in social justice and in education like those are really where I hang my hat and so a slow burn is an excellent description yeah yeah well thank you thank you for that and thank you for being vulnerable and sharing a little bit of your background I appreciate that I think that it's you're really part of the the, the the fabric of what we're trying to do here and helping the community get to know us a little bit better and the research that we do um, and why we do it so, so narrowing the focus a little bit, um, could you tell us a little bit about the circumstances surrounding this particular study? What brought you to this specific research questions or set of questions? Yeah, so I mentioned before, my doctoral study was on like in-service female PE teachers of color who all worked in predominantly white schools. So once I graduated and was as a teacher educator, it was a very natural progression to look at Pete um, particularly like addressing what I saw was like a distinct lack of PE teachers of color, like via the teacher pipeline that seemed really important. Um, it was sort of logical because I had access to potential participants and, you know, could use my contacts within Pete for study recruitment. Um, and there was a lot of similar parallels, um, in terms of data collection from my dissertation study. So I was like, you know, familiar with the methodology and means of data collection and analysis. This was my first foray into research on my own without my doctoral advisor guiding me and 
Um, it felt comfortable and it made sense. And then finally, you know, convenience and practicality, like I'm at a teaching institution. Uh, I needed to design and implement a study that would work with the very limited time that I could actually put towards it on a weekly basis. Um, and so it's taken me a long time to, to sort of finish this study, <laughs> right? Uh, but I think the slowness of the data collection and analysis has actually really helped yeah. develop like better results. So sometimes it's a good reminder not to rush when we're doing qualitative work where you mm -hmm. really need to like know the data, like the back of your hand. You know, so totally off topic, um, but but I'm I'm so glad that you said that, and um, you know I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else, if not more so. But 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 you know I, I do feel like there's been a shift in the last you know couple of decades related to exactly what you're talking about, and you know because of the the high pressures to publish uh, in in contemporary academia, um, you know people just don't have the people don't take the same amount of time don't take the same amount of time to kind of see yeah. through their work and, and kind of sit with it. There was this quote um, way back from when I was in grad school that always stuck with me about the importance of getting the, the data in your bones, for example, when you do analysis. Mm -hmm. And I just don't know how much of that we really do anymore. Yeah, there is definitely like, sometimes I'm just really amazed at the speed at which things come out. And I'm like, yeah. well, you know, I collected this data in the, I think 2018, 2019 year. And I'm finally on, this is my last, I have one last thing to publish from it. And, and I'm finally like, so, right. That's, you know, coming, it'll be four years in September since I got IRB approval. So that is, but I like, I know the data. So like I have read through the transcripts so many times, you know, so you just come to know it in a way that, like even at six months, like you just can't see things and things change and develop how you understand the world and the situation changes. So, um, you know, sometimes I'm a little self-conscious about how long it takes me to get through things. But at the end of the day, I do think it produces like a very high quality yeah. work, very high quality work, even if I don't put out as much of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's you know I think that there's there's something to be said for that. I mean, uh, you know, when when I'm talking with our doctoral students and we're thinking about you know publication and you know do we want to break this up into one paper or do we want to do it or do we want to do this in one paper? Or do we want to break it up into two? What do we want it to look like? You know, there's always that conversation about quality versus quantity, yeah. and and it and it makes me a little bit fearful um, because. Uh, you know, I don't know that we have that same emphasis on, on spending time with things. Like I remember talking to Templin when I first got into grad school and, you know, back in the early nineties, they would do like one project at a time and it would be their focus yeah. for that period of time. And then they'd publish that and move on. And, and now I feel like we juggle so much and you know, there's so much pressure to get things out quickly and to get things out in volume that, um, you know, I, I don't know that we sit things as with things as long as we uh, as we used to as a field. So, uh, aside to the point, but um, interesting conversation. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how did this study inform your scholarly identity or future research activities? In other words, what did you learn um, here that influenced what came after? Um, well, this, I mean, you know, 
this was an incredibly formative study for me. I mentioned this is yeah. my first one on my own and I'm still pre-tenure. I was very pre-tenure when I started it four years ago. Um, so I've been like writing and publishing about the results. And as I listened to the stories and, you know, started to think more critically about P, I, I realized that the missing piece of the puzzle was P faculty of color. Um, right. There's there is some literature out there. I got to give some credit to, you know, scholars like Dr. Hodge and Dr. Columna who have done a bit of that, a work on that. But there's not enough. Um, and there, you know, we talk all the time, particularly post summer of 2020 about like diversifying peat faculty. But so we need to sort of hear what's been going on for peat faculty in the interim. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just trying to, you know, work with current PE teachers and pre-service teachers of color. It was an obvious next step to like close the loop with teacher educators of color. So that study is currently in progress. Data collection is like just about completed. Um, hopefully you'll be able to hear the results at AERA 2023. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Working, working on that submission now, <laughs> <It's> like never <laughs> yeah. ending loop of uh, research submissions and presentations. But yeah. um, I think, you know, the thing that I keep with me most is like how valuable this work was to the participants. Yes. Um, that having someone like listen, validate, see, and then highlight for the rest of us, you know, the experiences of what it means to be raced in a white environment, like that doesn't very, that doesn't happen very often for many of them, particularly, you know, they're young, 19, 20, 21, like they're still learning about race and race dynamics. And so to have somebody say, tell me about what it's like to be a person of color in a white environment. Um, and yeah, that was racist actually. And that must be really hard. Like, you know, that wasn't a familiar feeling and story for them. And I, I'm not saying this to give myself props, but rather to highlight the necessity of continued work and reflection on the part of white faculty yeah. who, you know, need to come to terms or have what I would call a racial reckoning with the raced reality for folks of color in our field. And so, that is a guiding point for me is that like the process of the interviews themselves are really important. They, they are a space and time dedicated to that individual yes. to share about, you know, the realities of being, you know, a racialized individual, like in a white field. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that framing. Um, you know, it's, um, I haven't done interviews of this sort before, but I have, I have done interviews that involve a certain amount of vulnerability and trust, uh, talking about experiences, especially experiences that the participants wouldn't want other, wouldn't want to get tied back to them um, for fear of repercussion. Um, in that interview space, because, you know, it's under IRB and because, you know, you're, you, you have a sense of confidentiality, um, can become or I've seen become, for a lack of better word, cathartic for people yeah. as a way to just kind of get their emotions out, be able to talk about things with somebody who understands them, but is maybe a little bit removed from their immediate setting. Um, it can be really powerful. 
Absolutely. And I think, you know, in this case, oftentimes the participants, you know, they would tell me something and I'd be like, oh yeah, I mean, that is like related to, they'd be like, oh, it's not really about race. And I was like, well, it seems like it is to me because of this, 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 and this. And they'd be like, yeah, I just couldn't like articulate that. It was like, they had never been given the language to articulate some of the race dynamics that they felt. They were like, I know this is off or this felt weird to me. I'm not really sure why, like, here's what happened. I'd be like, oh, well, you know, when you have a white professor, like talking about race in a class, like, you know, and they're using you as an example, that actually is poor pedagogical practice. And like, you, you shouldn't have to have that if, if you didn't volunteer for it. Right. And so then they're like, yeah. And so it's like giving them a chance to articulate these ideas and experiences within a framework and with language that like matches the feelings they were having. Like they hadn't really had that before as well. And so that was, I think, meaningful for them. Like the feedback yeah. that I got was that these interviews, um, they felt exactly like you said, cathartic and and helpful to them to move forward and how they thought about like what it means to be a teacher of color. Yep, absolutely. Um, so do you, do you have any stories accompanying the process of completing this investigation that you feel comfortable sharing to give us a look under the hood? And um, this is the part where everybody chuckles, but I've gotten some good stories out of it. Bonus points if you can come up with something that makes us laugh. Okay, well, the overachiever in me like <laughs> is very annoyed that I probably won't get a bonus because I did think about this question for a long time and I was like going through each interview, what I could come up with. But like the reality is that this process was joyful, but it was also simultaneously hard, yeah. exhausting and emotional for everyone involved. Um, but what I would share is that you know, the thing I loved the most about the process was like that I did become someone, the participants, I think in general felt they could trust um, and like could come to going forward as an advisor Uh and mentor. I'm really proud to say that, um, you know, I keep in touch with nine out of the 10. That's all, you know, the nine are all moving forward in their careers in different ways. Several of them are teaching in public schools. Several of them are completing graduate degrees. Like one is even getting a doctorate at a prestigious institution, although it's in a different field. But like, you know, I, when I was prepping for this, I actually like sent them all like an email or text and it led to like, I I had a phone conversation. One is in, was invited to um, apply for like the head of PE position at their school. Another was just invited to be a Dean at their school. Like they're, they're doing really well. They've, you know, manifested their ancestors' wildest dreams and are making a different world. And like, I'm just so proud of them. Like, I just like love them so much. And I'm just like, every time I hear about, you know, a victory, like being in a school, teaching, making a difference, I'm just like, yes, I'm so proud of you. Like, wonderful. This is great. And so that joy that I feel as I witness them growing and their careers in the field is like, one you know it's such a benefit and bonus to me so yeah you know. and I can, I can see I can hear that in your voice and I know that the listeners can't see you the way that I can but I can see it on your in your facial expressions just how much joy that brings you um and and, and just what a great way to do this kind of work too because I think that, that you know one of the things that another thing that I think we another criticism we could levy against just science in general not just 
physical education. Um, um, but but that that a lot of researchers, especially you know those who work in communities and schools, um, get criticized for going out and, and kind of taking from the community, getting what they need for their publication. Uh, and, and then kind of more or less abandoning their participants. Um, and you build these relationships with people through the research process. And then the question always becomes, well, after the research is over, what happens? Um, and I think it's really powerful when you're able to kind of extend that, even if it's not research, you build these relationships with people. And, and after the research is gone, the people are still there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's nine, you know, teachers yeah. of color, not all of them are MPE and, you know, one couldn't pass his MTELs, but he's working at like the YMCA pro type program, which sure. is like total overlap. Great. Making a difference. You know, I mean, we, there's plenty of us that also do after school research. Sure. So, <laughs> um, you know, like I said, one's doing a doctorate, which is amazing. Uh, several master's degrees. So it's just like, like, I hope that by somehow, some way, their participation in this research helped them with their like sense of self and beliefs sure. and, and saying, yes, this is what I want to do and I can do it. And I also have this support person, a faculty member in the field who I know I can ask, like, do I take this job or this job? Or like, I want to do grad school. How do I do this? Like, I have no idea. And, and I get them through it. Like, that is absolutely the making a difference part. Yes. Super, super, super cool. Um, so uh, based on this investigation, uh, what lessons did you learn about the research process that you can share with other members of the academic community and our listeners? Okay. Uh, I learned that I couldn't do it all myself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I needed help with my, you know, four, four teaching load. And I was like, I, I, I can't do this. Like this will never get out if I'm doing it on my own. But I did have to think carefully about who I wanted to invite into the research. Sure. Um, and it had to be people who would further our understanding of the data, uh, someone whose lived experiences were parallel to the participants and someone who would benefit from coming onto the team. And so I did, uh, you know, started with Corey Boyd, who's my colleague at Springfield College. He's like came to Springfield one year after me. And then he you know, uh, connected us to Corey Dixon. He and Corey had gone to Auburn for their doctorate program together. Corey's at Rowan in New Jersey. And so I just am so grateful for the two yeah. of them. You know, we are like a real team, the three of us. We've worked together. It's been almost, you know, a couple of years now. And um, I, I am very proud of what we've accomplished. Yeah. And so I would argue the lesson is to collaborate but collaborate like really purposely and intentionally in ways that like lift all of you up together. Like you think that was really important. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, so so a, 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 another question that I had written down a few minutes ago that was not on the list that I gave you before, but okay. <laughs> hearing you talk, I feel like it's a question that I have to ask. Sure. Um, you know, what are the implications of this work um, for, for, for the act of teacher education, uh, and specifically in your own um, career, uh, is there anything that's kind of spun off from this that you can say, you know what, I've changed this aspect of my teaching, or I'm more attentive to this aspect of my teaching because I did this study? Yeah, I think I, you know, felt more strength in making my methods courses uh, specifically uh, focused on culturally relevant pedagogy. Yeah. So 
you know, for backdrop, right, I am at Springfield College. We are in the heart of a um, city that is, I think, 90% uh, people of color, almost, I think, like 70% Latinx. And so when I bring students into schools, this, these methods classes, we have a lab where we go once a week to teach in local public schools. And so like we are living this sort of thing that Gloria Ladson Billings wrote about, right? Like white teachers going into schools and teaching almost exclusively black and Latinx students. And so I, as I worked through this and I heard how meaningful it was for this pre-service teachers of color, it really gave me the, the final push that I needed to reframe my methods courses completely around culturally relevant pedagogy to help not only pre-service teachers of color, but white students as well, think about what it means to teach in diverse you know, urban schools who are also at the intersection of like race and socioeconomic status, right? I think 90% of Springfield public school students uh, receive free or reduced lunch. Wow, okay, yeah. So, um, you know, now we spend like multiple weeks on this idea of culturally relevant pedagogy. They have several assignments related to it. They have to put those ideas into practice when they go into the schools and teach. And I didn't do that my first couple of years because I was scared of how the students would react to it. And I was scared of backlash or, um, you know, just them thinking it might be irrelevant. And, but I heard how important it was to the students of color and that helped me be like, okay, this is what I need to do. Not only for the, like, you know, typically maybe one student of color that I have in the class, but like, for the white, like this benefits everybody. Sure. And sure. so yeah. that, you know, I think really bringing in these ideas, these central tenets of culturally relevant or, you know, responsive sustaining pedagogies, like it makes a difference in yeah. how we understand teaching, particularly in diverse schools. Yeah, yeah, and so much. Um, and, and as you know, that the, the, there's a there's a bit of a personal connection with me, for me here too. And hearing you talk about this is really eye opening. Um, you know, I went through the undergraduate program at Springfield College, and it was it was really a good uh, undergraduate P program. I learned a lot, um, but I remember going out to those primarily Black and Latinx schools and. Um, and not really thinking about the implications of race. I mean, I, I student taught at the High School of Commerce um, right in downtown Springfield, which is, which is very uh, racially and, uh, and ethnically diverse. Um, and, and that was just never part of my thinking. Yeah. Um, but hearing you talk through that now um, you're in using, you know, Springfield as a reference point, because I know it, um, it really helps me kind of think back through and reprocess some of those experiences. And so I'm sure yeah. that uh, that the, the um, pre-service teachers in your program, even if they might not appreciate it now, they will eventually, because schools are getting more and more diverse, and this is reality. Yeah, and that's how I usually frame it to them, where I'm like, hey, you know, doesn't matter whether you, what, you know, whether you want to go back and teach in your, like, entirely white suburban school, like, this is happening, and yeah. it's happening <laughs> fast, because in 2011, when I, like, 
first came into this this world, like the statistic was like 35% of public school students were students of color. Like 11 years later, it's now at 50%. Yeah. Like that is a fast shift, yeah. right? And so like, regardless of where you end up teaching, like you're going to be in a diverse school. And yep. so, and once they sort of see that and I'm like, and on the flip side, 80% of teachers are white and female. So you're all right in there. Like yep. here you are. And so you need to think about this. And once we work through that, you know, um, suddenly it, 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 I have seen like a shift in the feedback that for the most part, not everybody, but um, many, I would say maybe two thirds are like, yes, I really value that. Um, I can see why I need yeah. this and, and I want to use it going forward. I mean, usually it's like, oh, so I'll get a job. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever, however it makes sense to you. Sure. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, as we're getting ready to, to kind of close out, thank you. So this has been a wonderful conversation, both. Um, I, I think that the, the listeners are really going to enjoy this, but it's been um, really fun and engaging and, and, and educational for me as well. Um, before we close out, is there anything else you'd like to share about this investigation or your work more generally that maybe we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I have, you know, one other thing I wanted to talk about, and, and this perhaps, you know, sounds maybe a bit of a broken record because I think I bring it up a lot in academic spaces, but I think it's very important to acknowledge that like, I made a lot of mistakes while engaging in this project. I was not perfect, you know, several of the interviews, I wish I had responded in different ways. I wish I'd done some things differently. Uh, you know, times where I centered like whiteness and my white self, like not even realizing it, like very sort of unconsciously. Um, and so those are part of the process for yeah. me. I think it's really important to acknowledge that I made those mistakes and yet still developed meaningful long-term relationship with the participants. And so this is very important Um for I think our white listeners to hear that like, you're not gonna be perfect in this world and in this work um, and we make mistakes, like, but it's better to try and make a mistake than to do nothing at all. I think sometimes the fear of like, you know, being labeled as racist or doing something that is offensive stops us from trying at all. But the reality is that we all understand that to err is to human and you can build a meaningful long-term trusting supporting relationship with in my case the pre-service PE teachers of color in spite of making some of those mistakes yeah. so I just wanted to emphasize that like I am not this like perfect you know anti-racist professor out there like I make a lot of mistakes I sometimes am completely stunned into silence in a class. And I like the next day, I'm like, why did I not address that? Right. So it's like, we just keep trying and it's a slow burn, a slow evolution yeah. towards um, a more meaningful way of engaging with race and racism in our field. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that, Mara. And, and, you, and you said that to me once. I don't remember where we were, but I remember standing with you and I, and I asked you a question about that at a conference um, you know, about how as, as a cisgender white male, how do I approach these things in yeah. a meaningful way? And you said it just like that. You said, you got to try and, and it's okay to make mistakes. It's not about being perfect. And that gave me, um, you know, a sense of permission. I think that, that I think a lot of people need to get or, or, or want to have, um, 
uh, and so appreciate you again being vulnerable and being willing to kind of talk through uh, that process. And you know, it's not perfect; it's never going to be perfect, but it's a trajectory, right? It's it's exactly. about making progress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so just to close us out, um, you know, because we're trying to get to know the stories behind the research, I think it's a little bit of fun to end with some rapid fire questions uh, that help us get to know you a little bit better. I have six categories. Um, I don't think that I gave you the categories, although I did say that I was going to do this. Are you comfortable giving me your quickest responses? Yeah. Okay. You did. You did give me the categories. Did I give you the categories? Okay. All right. Unless you change them on me. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't think I did. <laughs> uh, so first, first category, favorite color. Yellow. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like, I was like, I don't know. I, I like the rainbow. Let's say that. Yeah, That's a go. better answer. <laughs> um, favorite animal. Again, fox. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's a good really... one. <laughs> my, my favorite. So Michael Hemphill said duck. <laughs> duck of all the animals you're gonna go with duck but maybe i wonder how many of like of us said like woodland creatures like you feel like there is an affinity there for yeah. the um, yeah so favorite season of the year now i'm a i'm a basic bitch sorry but i like to fall. <laughs> <laughs> give me a like pumpkin or like hot apple cider and a fleece and like some pumpkin apple picking and i am good <laughs> the fall fall time then yep <laughs> absolutely okay cool so favorite place on earth um, it's a tie between the Berkshires and Western Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. And then on the flip side, New York city, those are the two places where I live clearly a homebody, but it's also the places that just like absolutely have my heart and I don't want to yeah. be anywhere else. And they're, and they're very, they're, they're somewhat different places. No. <laughs> they're very much polar <laughs> opposites, <laughs> which is probably why I like them both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, favorite food thing to eat uh asian give me all the vietnamese thai malaysian japanese chinese indian and any other pan-asian cuisines by far and away i'm there with you on that i love some good pad thai that's that's high on my list <laughs> uh last one favorite thing to drink uh here to plug trader joe's sparkling coconut yuzu spritzer there we it's go like, it's so good it's like coconut sparkling coconut water with a little citrus and it is awesome Ooh. Uh, so if you have a Trader Joe's near you, highly recommend it. I also love Diet Coke, but try not to drink it that often. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, you, you might've seen before, I've got a bit of a Diet Coke problem. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Omar, well, this was so fun. Thank you so much again for opening up and being vulnerable and talking to us through the process. Um, just to remind everybody, um, the article will be linked in the show notes. Uh, if you'd like to, to read uh, more about Mara, Corey, and Corey's work, um, definitely would suggest that you do that. Uh, and thank you again for joining us. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. 
You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.